Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us to produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries. And I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When it comes to the photographs of politicians, entertainers, and celebrities, it used to be that the photographers behind those images were relegated to anonymity. Yes, they would get a byline, but it was rare that these photographers achieved any sense of name recognition. However, over the last several decades, photographers have gained their own notoriety that goes beyond simply being known by other photographers. When you think of a celebrity photographer, there are likely a couple of names that come to mind. And whoever that is for you, you likely find yourself thinking of some of their iconic imagery. When I think of photographer Chris Buck, I think of his photographs of Steve Martin, Billy Bob Thornton, and President Obama. But Buck deserves attention for more than his celebrity photographs, but also for his range of personal projects and being able to achieve continued success in an ever-changing industry. I like your headphones. I think that's the kind of headphones I have at home for listening to music um, on my computer. Oh, yeah? I don't like to wear the noise-canceling ones, you know? Those are real sound, like sound audio like audio headphones, right? Yeah, I've gone through so many different <laughs> headphones and microphones over the years. Yeah. it's. Uh, I bought a nice microphone set because I interviewed my parents about family history. Oh, and yeah. so I uh, I want to get good quality because I can make it into like a little radio show or something eventually. Yeah, luckily um, my, dad was, my dad passed away probably four years ago. And um, getting him to talk to me was always real difficult. But my cousin, who was uh, his brother's son, came into town he wanted his father had passed away about two years before and so we he sat down and interviewed my dad and i was there and i recorded it using my my kit and like uh, this yeah like this so it's like the only chance i really had to that's amazing that's yeah. good for you i've never been able to listen to it though since he passed you know away. my dad just died last year so i pulled out my recordings just because he also he lost his voice in the last 10 years of his life. So the first recording I did was in 2004, and it's shocking to hear him talking again. Yeah. He, he doesn't sound healthy. In fact, he was, he was getting sick to prompt me to 
do the interview to properly get it because I was like putting it off, you know, because I was busy. I finally got around to doing it because he was sick. And uh, but I'm so glad I did, you know. But the problem is they're hard to listen to. Like I was listening with my daughter and I could tell she was disinterested because it was hard to hear him, Mm -hmm. the voice quality. But it's good. I mean, it was it was weird because I was listening like, you know, the day after he died. It was pretty weird. Wow. I don't. It's been three, four years now and I still... Really? Can't. At some point, I'm going to listen to it, but I just, part of me just knows I'm just going to, it's just going to open up something in my chest when that's, I listen good to though. it again. But I'm glad I have it. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I always encourage people to do this, and they're kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, the theory, they agree. Yeah. But getting people to do it. I think also doing audio versus video, I think people get self-conscious about being seen mm-hmm. and less conscious about being heard. What, what spurred you to, to record your dad in the first place? That's a great question. I think as a whole, I mean, I guess I don't want to theorize for everyone, but I think, I think we are, I think part of our search for our lives, searching for meaning is searching for, is searching through identity. And I realize a lot of my work is about identity. Mm-hmm. Like I did a series of people named Chris Buck. Yeah. I did that presence series, which is famous people, but it's famous people where they're not visible. So it's sort of testing the limits of what a name can do to a picture and how you perceive it. I mean, that's one value of the series, but that's the part connected to identity. And I don't know, I think it's it's not like I'm that close to my family, but I'm very interested in the history and the stories. And I'm sure it has to do with mortality. And I feel like if I keep their stories alive, then, then maybe my story will be kept alive. And it's like... It's trying to kind of live live on. Mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah, identity, death, all the big ones. Yeah. Did you learn anything from the conversation you had from him? Uh, you know, there's that thing when you get older, you become an adult and you're dealing with your parents. And they're still your parents and you still treat them with that authority. But you also recognize that they're people, right? And you you see their mistakes and their frailties. And, you know, it's interesting having him speak to me as... He didn't show a ton of vulnerability, but he did, you know, he did talk about maybe mistakes he'd made and things like that. I mean, my favorite part is because uh, I interviewed my parents separately and I asked my dad what their wedding night was like. And he um, he said uh, he gave me an answer. I mean, it wasn't, you know, super explicit, but you know, he said it was awkward, but nice. And, you know, and it got better later. And it was, it was very, I don't know, I felt like I could never have asked him that question otherwise. Mm-hmm. But in the context of an interview, it sort of, it felt like I'm going to go for it, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was, I don't know, in a weird way, I think he liked that I asked. It was, it was sort of funny. And, you know, because I, I was like, you know, you guys always said you're virgins when you got married, but come on. Like, now for the record. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting because... You know, here you're sitting there with your dad trying to elicit something from him. And, and that's part of what you do for a living. You, yeah. you, you know, you get people in front of you and trying to solicit something from them for the purpose of a uh, of a photograph. Uh, but from what I know of you is that you're pretty sort of a shy kid. Mm, or, yeah. Or, or Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sh- I think that I don't think I'm sh- I was ever shy so much as I think as a kid, I I didn't get I wasn't really part of the the inner group of uh-huh. cool kids, but I think I th- I think I thought I should be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where my conflict came from. And a, a lot of my work, I think, comes from that stems from that frustration. Like, like in a way, photographing famous people is is photographing and controlling the cool crowd. Cool crowd. That is that's very insightful. 
And so I'm trying to prove to the cool crowd that they are wrong, you know, when I was like 11, 12 years old. Yeah. I'm also now getting to tell the cool crowd what to do and control them. But do you, do you still feel that you're still the outsider, even though you're in control of the show? Absolutely. I mean, look, obviously, you know, some subjects are, are respectful and they understand the process and they understand that it's in their interest that the photographer like them and some don't get it. I mean, I recently photographed Annie Leibovitz and she was very difficult. You'd think she'd get that more than anyone, mm-hmm. but she was very difficult and made the, the process of making her picture like a really um, difficult task. It was also just like really trippy, you know, because she's a very successful person in my field, to be kind of making my life difficult was really bizarre to me. And I'm, I'm successful enough in this area to recognize, like, this is kind of a weird choice she's making. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point it did cross my mind, like, during the shoot, like, she knows I do the first edit. I mean, she knows. I mean, obviously she knows that. Yeah. So why would she be doing this to me? And what... What was the answer you came up with? I think she's got some real issues. Because I don't think it was about me. I don't think she even knew who I was. It's mm-hmm. not like she wanted to mess with Chris Buck. But you know how it is. You kind of know people who are from before you and people after you. You might know a few of them, but you don't really know the people who come after you. You know, I came along 15 years after her, right? So she wouldn't really know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't expect her to. But I just happened to be the person who was supposed to make her portrait that day. And therefore, I was the one who got, you know... You know, I think it's sort of like thing where when you're when you're in Annie's orbit, you're literally in Annie's orbit. Like it's Annie's world, and you just live mm-hmm. in it. Right. So, you, do you think it was an issue of control? She's used absolutely. To but I think it was even more than control. I think it was. I think she was. I mean, okay, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to diagnose what was going on, but something was going on that that was. Let's just say I think the photo shoot was bringing out something else that was going on in her mm-hmm. life. So how did so how when you when you deal with a situation like that how do you how do you ensure that you get the photograph that you went there to Well, to you know, it really is and that's a great question because you know, you're asking initially about interviewing my father. Well, you know, in the end, I need to still have a relationship with my father. But with a photo subject, I don't. At least that's that's the way I approach shoots. You know, I I I've kind of realized I have a kind of attitude of I'm prepared to burn bridges to get the shot. I'm here for the shot today. Mm-hmm. I'm not investing in a relationship for the future. So all my choices, the little things I do, how I talk to people, the order we do the shots, all those things are all to get one or two great frames today. In the case with Andy, I tried everything, you know? I mean, I don't really want to go into the whole story because that's yeah. all we could talk about just that. But, you know, I tried flattering her. I tried being quiet. I tried you know, kind of being uh, like being a little tough on her, you know, throwing down the gauntlet like, you know, you know, I, you know, I will not. I didn't say like I won't be treated like this because, you know, I don't really care how I'm treated. But, you know, just sort of stuff, just anything I could to get her to like literally to get in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was it was something we had to we actually had to come back again a week later to shoot again. Oh, really? Yeah. We got a few. We got a few frames, and again, that's one of the things you do. I made sure I did a setup that kind of I let her kind of put together, just to get something in camera. So as a professional, I've got something. And then once I had that, we literally shot like maybe I don't know six frames that were in focus of it. You know, because my assistant's sitting right next to me, and I'm like, "Are any of them sharp?" And she's like, "Yeah, you can just a few really good ones here." I'm like, "Great." Done. Okay, now let's do something else. And then, you know, I suggest what we do for something else, and she's not going to do that. Hmm. And so I'll just sort of let, I kind of let her put together a shot, and then I try to do a shot, and she's like, she's not going to do that one, that yeah. shot. 
And so, you know, whatever. Anyways, when, when anytime, anytime dealing with anyone, you're, the fact is most subjects are not like that. Even if they're difficult or they don't want to have their picture taken, people generally, even if they hate having their picture taken, they arrive, they know they're there to have their picture taken. Right. They come, they're there, you know, CEOs of companies famously hate having their pictures taken, but it's part of their job. They show up, they do it, they hit their mark. They say yes to some things. They say no to others. Totally reasonable, but they, they do it. Yeah. And, and that, that was the issue, but let's move on to other shoots. Yeah. But you said that, you know, you're not there to be liked. You're there to make the photographs and that that becomes your priority. And you, and you're very clear about that now, but was that a lesson that was hard learned? You know, it was, I think it was always kind of, I think philosophically it was always there, but I did have to learn it. As one learns process, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still learning new ways to do things, new ways to interact with people. But early on, certainly like when I was shooting bands and musicians early on, I was shooting bands who I listened to and I was big fans of. And it was super exciting to like, you know, be spending like an hour with Sonic Youth or Nick Cave, you know, and be I was like beside myself and I just sort of, I don't think it was conscious, but unconsciously it was a, in my mind, I was like, you know, maybe we're going to become friends and we're going to hang out mm-hmm. and maybe I'll go on tour with them and, you know, we're going to go for dinner after and none of that happened. And they just thought I was totally like super lame and, and like, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure I barely registered, but whatever, how much I registered, I don't, it was like this guy's, you know, annoying and, and lame and whatever. And so I learned like, all right, I got to go there and just focus on the pictures. You know, I'm not there to make friends and there to make pictures. And, you know, it's a nice saying, but it really, it does direct the way I shoot. You know, the fact is, is that, you know, ultimately I, I mean, I've become friends with a handful of people I photographed, but very, very few. And that's the, for the best. The people who are friends with their subjects make really boring pictures of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that, that you, you talked about is that for your photography is not so much a collaboration. You know, that, that you're going to be in control of your vision. But there's sometimes when you're dealing with celebrity where you're pitching ideas to them and they're the ones that go yay or nay. So how do you sort of jive between what you're aspiring to get from them and the fact that they can say yes or no? How, you know, how do you sort of... Well, even saying, even saying yes or no, they're not... That's not collaboration. That's just veto. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like Congress writes the bill and the president can veto it or he can sign it. That said, I do think that the, the thing about it is like early on, you go and you shoot and you're shooting someone who's highly achieved in whatever area and you, you assume like they're bringing that to the table, right? You go to shoot with a musician and they're going to bring all of this like, um, you know, in energy of, of what they do uh, or you're shooting with a, um, you know, a writer or, um, comedian who's going to bring this comic energy and ideas and you, you know, you know their work, you know how awesome they are. You've watched, you know, they're, you know, the extras on the DVD that shows them like improvising alternate takes. And you're like, this is going to be great. We're just going to show up and it's going to be magic. Yeah. Then you do a couple of shoots and you're like, oh, that's not like that. Like they show up and they just want to be told what to do. And they come and they say, all right, what do you want to do? And you say, oh, God, I got this. I don't think that's really right, but thank you. Yeah, I got this. Well, we can try that. Like, so you kind of go through and then, you know, oftentimes you, you do that beforehand via email with a publicist. And so they kind of narrow down some of the ideas and you, you get at least like some kind of, okay, we're going to rent this prop or we're going to build this thing and Mm -hmm. maybe get this costume and they're going to do it because they've already said yes. So that's great. But you know, what does happen 
but you don't rely on it is you does it there's a chance they're going to come in and then once you're there and you're like 90 percent there then they do that last 10 percent where like on set they deliver and especially when you're dealing with professional performers whether they be music or comedians or actors or whatever they know how to deliver so once they're in front of the camera and they're on board and you've got a good energy going then they're going to give you that little performance that you know my best known pictures have that like the steve martin picture or um the steve carell picture at the table Mm -hmm. you know that's that i that picture works because it's really half me and half him you know i said i want you to kind of splay yourself across the table kind of beautifully and awkwardly all at once and then he did that and bam and that's his version of it you know and it's full on me and full on him but getting that that final 10 percent, i think is so critical because it's it's i I disagree if really you can't rely on it because they might give it to you great and if they don't give it to you you still gotta get the shot like I've had subjects who are like fairly disagreeable who have gotten great pictures with because because in a way like you know the people say like you know say like I'm gonna make your picture mm-hmm. as opposed to, I'm taking your picture I'm taking it from you like you half the time I'm taking I'm, I'm taking the picture that you don't want to give me it's my job to get you to give it to right. me that you don't want to give it so in a way you might be giving me the performance despite yourself Explain this to me a little further, because when I think about photographs, you know, I think about, okay, I got the setting, I've got the lighting, I've got the technical stuff right there. And oftentimes what I'm looking for is that little gesture, that little nuance that that transforms the shot. And in a portrait, you're relying on the subject to, to some degree, provide that for you. But you're telling me that you, you can't rely on that. So what do you... What do you look for to provide that final flourish to make you feel like you've got the shot rather than just an elaborate setup? Sure. And and my approach is exactly the same as yours. I mean, it's more elaborate now than when I was first starting. But my philosophy was great background, great lighting. You know, by great, I just mean whatever is the thing that suits the shot. But like good lighting, good background, and then some kind of moment that feels genuine or interesting or electric within that little that little stage you've built, right? Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is I, I wouldn't call it collaboration in the sense that the way I get it from my subject might be more through like a little nudge than through a kind of collaborate. I mean, it's collaboration, but it may not be as voluntary as it looks. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example? Sure. When I shot with Elvis Costello, I think it was in 95. I'll tell you the whole background. The story is just kind of fun because um, a friend of mine, one of my colleagues, had gone and shot him as part of the same press tour or whatever. So he came back and he said, oh, it's impossible. You know, the room's small. It's a hotel room. There's nothing there. The walls are plain. The light's bad. There's just, you know, do what you can. Maybe a tight headshot. I don't know. I didn't get much I like, but you try, you know, but I'll tell you, there's not much to work with. So, of course, I took this as a challenge. I'm like, I want to do better than him. Mm-hmm. So I went in there and there was a, um, in the corner was a, like a side table beside a couch. And it was um, at least semi-reflective. So I pulled it out like half a foot. And then when Elvis came in, I just instructed him to go behind the table in the corner. So he goes back there and he's super uncomfortable and he's looking at me like, and I was like, great, hold still. And I'm just shooting, you know, my Hasselblad. And then after about like, I don't know, you know, like a roll, he's like, this is, I don't like this. This is not good. And then he, you know, he comes out and we did more standard pictures. But we got the picture and it looked amazing. Mm-hmm. He looked really uncomfortable, but it really, to me, his music was, his best music was about him being super uncomfortable and being in self-conflict. So that picture was um. like amazing and it just hit the mark. And in 
that's a very overt story, but a lot of what I do is about getting myself and getting my subjects kind of crammed into those corners and like making them a little uncomfortable and then getting the shot. Mm. Speaking of corners, Irving Penn is famous for his corner series, and I know that he is a hero of yours, photographic hero. What was it about his work that when you looked at his work that you felt like, wow, I would love to be able to create images like that? What did you see in his work? Well, recently I've actually been kind of looking through his work again, and I realized, and this is not a knock, because he's obviously like an amazing town with great breadth of material that he's done, you know, different genres, professional work, personal work, all of it having some great value. But I realized there's a very narrow niche that I'm really drawn to with him, which is, you'll make sense, which is his super awkward portraits. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite one is Christian Dior. I think it's from the late 40s. It's just Christian Dior kind of slumped in a chair. But it's not a candid shot. It's it's a portrait. It's a setup portrait. It's very clean. Um, he's sort of sit, sitting back and his head's tilted to the side. He's kind of looking kind of just past camera, I think. It's it's amazing because it has a quality of like, and this is what I always kind of took as my beacon, is he thinks you're, he thinks his subject is interesting, so he's going to make them look interesting. Rather than this idea of like flattering people by making them look, you know, handsome or beautiful or, you know, young and thin or whatever the ideal mm-hmm. is, he's like, this is a really fascinating person. I want to make them look fascinating. And that picture of the John Osborne picture with the kind of um, the hunched back. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Just like the you look at that and you're like, you got to who is this John Osborne? Like, I want to read his work, you know. So I think that there's something about like pictures. There's a few others, but there literally only are like a half dozen he did that have that level of like awkwardness. I mean, the Joe Lewis picture in the corner. Mm-hmm. Just great. I mean, Joe Lewis one of the top sports figures of his time and he's dressed as a boxer but he looks like deflated Mm -hmm. it's an amazing photo and that's what I wanted to do I love the idea of of taking these grand important people and kind of almost turn them inside out one of the interesting things you said is that you aspired to be you know the Irving Penn of your generation at, at one point, and then at some point you realized that that wasn't going to going to happen for you, and you sort of gave up that idea. But that that was like the best thing that could happen to you because it allowed you, it allowed you to come into your own. So tell me more about that revelation and what that was like for you, and why did it become such a crucial moment for you in your career? I honestly can't say I know. I and I only know. That it happened because I could see retrospectively. Like at the time, I just was like, you know how it is with your life. You kind of like, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to manage. I'll give you the little background story so that, um, and you are saying it correctly, but just to give a little more background, I was turning 30 and it was, I was in New York. I've been in New York now for four years and I really wasn't, my career wasn't where it should be. I didn't, wasn't getting the jobs I wanted or expected of myself. And I wasn't delivering the work that made me deserve those jobs. My work was fine and I made some good images here and there, but I really wasn't really making, I don't know, there wasn't that kind of like vision and strength and, and clarity of, of direction that I, that I'd hoped for myself. And I was very disappointed. And, you know, it's, 
I guess, you know, you, you have a kind of narrative in your mind of where your career is going to go and your life's going to go. When it doesn't meet that, it's, it's very disheartening. And turning 30 was a big benchmark for, you know, becoming a man. Uh, you know, I was no longer, you know, good for my age or whatever, you know, cause I was always very sort of driven and serious. And I smartly went into something I had some skill in. So I was doing pretty well, you know, out there at 30 and I didn't really have much to show for it and really no momentum. And, um, you know, I was going to leave the business. And I considered becoming a teacher, but I was like, well, what's the point in being like a bitter teacher? Like that, no, no student wants that. And we've all seen teachers like that. And you don't want teachers like that. Just no fun. And, and it's just d- depressing. So I kind of, I don't know, maybe it was like, man, what's that expression? Um, sunken investment or whatever. I put all this time in and I, was, I wasn't about to change careers. I figured, well, I'll just, I'll do this and I'll resign myself to having like a, you know, a middling, okay career and I'll just get by. And I didn't, I didn't even have a vision for what it would be. I just thought, I'll just, I'll just do this and I'll just have diminished expectations or something. In retrospect, but I think what that did was it took off some pressure and allowed me just to kind of connect to my flow, I guess, as a, as a nice way of putting it. Mm-hmm. That once there wasn't this sort of, this, this whole thing hanging over me of like reaching that level of, of penness or whatever, right. which is, you know, let's face it, it's, it's an illusion in of itself, right? I mean, Irving Penn struggled himself. He struggled with, who through his whole career with his own sense of confidence and identity and such. So, you know, that's, it's not like Penn was invincible. He was a man. Um, and so, so it just allowed me to, you know, really kind of focus on the work. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I know, I don't know if I really have an answer. I guess what I'll say, one thing I'll say about it is that there is something that, um, I was reading something recently about, it was about ideas and how to come up with ideas. And they're saying that rather than trying to come up with five great ideas, try to come up with 10 bad ideas. Hmm. Because when you're trying to come up with some great ideas, even good ideas, there's so much pressure on you to like deliver the goods. And you got that blank piece of paper and you're like, all right, in the, in the next, you know, this, this morning I have to come up with five great ideas for photo projects or whatever it is. And, you know, it, that pressure is very tough. And I think our brains are built to protect us from failure. So you, so you kind of make conservative choices. If you try to do 10 bad ideas, then you open up and you try stuff. And at first it's sort of consciously like ridiculous things that either are unshootable or just are like laughably silly or whatever. But then it, but now, now the floodgates are open and some good things can flow in there too. You're no longer editing yourself. And I think maybe some version of that is what happened to me that by taking the pressure off, I could just experiment and try things. And then something of, of my truer vision came through and maybe, maybe taking that pressure off too was a sense of like, well, I'm not going to matter. So I might as well make some pictures that I think are interesting. Hmm. And you embrace the possibility of failure. It seems. I don't know. Failure was always part of the narrative, I guess. But yeah. in a way, in a way, you're right. Maybe in the sense that, like, because I think when you're young and you're aspiring for any of this, you feel like you can't afford to fuck up. Right. You can't afford to make any mistakes. And then when you sort of let go of that, you're just like, well, whatever happens, happens, and that you'll learn and you'll recover from that. Right. And then that opens up the floodgates because I think when you're thinking about, okay, I can't make any mistakes. There's a rigidness and a narrowness of thinking right. that keeps you from really discovering all the possibilities you're capable of doing. Totally. And you know, if you if you're lucky, you'll you'll challenge what people think of you and what you what your work even is. I mean, that's you know, and you'll do some projects that will be kind of like just okay, and you'll do some projects that are amazing. Mm-hmm. Can you point to? Certain mistakes, failures, whatever way you want to sort of interpret it, that 
that you felt like were real linchpins in terms of you being able to move to the next level? That's a great question. Uh, I don't, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think of small things that were, um, you know, there were lessons. Like one thing for me is that I never assisted professionally. So I really learned through trial and error. Like, you know, there was a lot of error mm-hmm. and you know, it was dangerous because, you know, I moved to New York when, you know, during that period and I was making lots of mistakes and I was really worried about, you know, being very like visibly failing. In a way, I, I didn't have the skills to be an assistant. So I kind of, I failed into being a photographer. Um, <laughs> And, you know, now it's, it's fine, but, you know, for a long time, I was even afraid to hire assistants because they, they would know so much more than me. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's things like, I remember I went to go shoot the Pixies and I shot with them and I really wasn't happy. And I asked, can I come back tomorrow? Uh, this is when they were touring early on in Toronto. I said, can I come back tomorrow and do more? And we got along great and they're very nice. And they said, sure, we're leaving at nine. So to come before nine. So I get there. I'm, I'm late. I get there at nine, 10 and they're gone. Hmm. And now who knows? Maybe they left at eight and they're fucking with me. But I was like, you know what? I can't be late. Like, and I had to learn like to get earlier. And now I go, I arrived to set three and a half hours before the subject because, you know, you learn that you, you learn that stuff. I mean, big mistakes. I don't know. I mean, certainly like doing shoots that were real failures, like real bombs, at least to me. I mean, obviously you try to be part of professionalism is even when it's a fail to me, the client still has usable material. So I, that hasn't happened in a long, long time where it's been a fail for the client as well. But they're, you know, they're, they, knowing that's possible is huge. Like even now I go to do a job, I might even have a big production with a crew and all that, but I'm like, this could fail. And knowing, knowing that, like knowing that that's real is huge. Yeah. Well, you kept a, a photo diary in which immediately after a shoot, you would like write down your experience there. And from what I read that you would write down not only the things that went well, but all the things that you felt, felt, fell short. So tell me how valuable was that? And, and why was it so important that you write immediately after your shoot rather than going straight to the images? I think after a shoot, I mean, this is in the film, this is the film days. So was, I did this in the early 90s for about, I guess, a year and a half. It was in those days where I was failing all the time. But, you know, I, I met with my mentor who was a great photography teacher and photographer and he suggested it. And I don't mean, I don't remember what prompted it, but it was a great suggestion. And I got onto it right away and I come back from a shoot and I would like tape in either a Polaroid or maybe I'd leave a space and put in the tear sheet, like image or something later. I just write down everything. I mean, like you say, initially it was all technical stuff, but you know, technical was a huge part for me. Like I wasn't technical minded when I was young and I'm still more interested in the pictures than I am in the cameras and such. But I enjoy the technical stuff now in a way, the challenge of the technical, I enjoy more now than I did then, just because I have a foundation, so now I can build on it, so mm-hmm. it's a lot more comprehensible. But back then, like, you know, all the color filters, and, you know, I was shooting transparency, so it's very precise, uh, and it was great training, obviously. But yeah, I'd write down all the, the way I was interacted with people. Um, I mean, I was reading some of it the other day, and it's, it's crazy, all the stuff that's in there. I mean, in a way, it would, I kind of wish I still did it, because it's just an amazing like record of like right after the shoot, yeah. you know. But the problem is that I've done it too, where I do audio after a shoot. I did that when I was here in this apartment, and I was I was shooting um, William Shatner, and I was such a wreck 
that the audio is just like me babbling and just like a, a total mess. And, you know, in the end, I got like one or two decent frames and everything else, I mean, it was all usable, but nothing else had any magic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do recommend it. I think you have to have a certain level of, of uh, direction already for that to really be meaningful. I think if you if you're just someone who's a like a, a serious amateur, I don't think that process is going to really dent you that much. I think you have to have a, some sense of like direction and you know shooting portraits. I had a sense of where I wanted to go, and and that these were literally obstacles in my way that I had to either work around or remove. Yeah. And um, so it really was very it was very functional. I mean, you know, it's fun to look back and read now. I mean, one of the great things too is looking back and seeing how almost like like I did two books of these. Almost all the shoots are totally forgettable. Like in, in terms of who I was photographing, are just not interesting or like important people now. And it just it's just an interesting reminder of how like most of what you do will not really mean anything in the future. <laughs> you know, and occasionally like Sally Mann is in there, which is fun, but most of them are just people who no one would ever care about now. You know, you said. Uh, that you take some of your own personal damage and you put it into your photograph. What do you mean by that? What is not clear about that? I mean, I think that, I don't know. I mean, isn't that what art is? Putting all your damage in your work? I mean, that's where the interesting stuff is. And I think it's it's a conflict in us, the, the struggle to, like, just get by or to succeed or, you know, to you know, have a partner or what all those things to be approved of, to be loved by people, Mm -hmm. all those things, you know, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if I always did that, but I think I was drawn images like that, like the Irving Penn one. But yeah, at some point that became like a big part of my work. I always had kind of issues around my body because I wasn't athletic. You know, when you're a young man or like a teenager boys are are assessed on their athleticism more than anything else mm-hmm. you know not their intelligence not their wit not their like kindness god forbid uh, <laughs> but on their their athletic prowess and i had none and you know i still don't have any i mean i played street hockey in new york for years and i got no respect and it's because i wasn't a good hockey player it doesn't matter that i was successful in a different realm once you're you know once you're on the field it's all about that game mm-hmm. and you know it's weird it's a it's a pure meritocracy in that way and so you know my work became a lot about uh that awkwardness i felt with my body and you know when i'd shoot with people i just i'd find myself backing up and backing up and backing up because i want to get that body that body thing it kind of makes sense to me because it's like it seems like in that you take that sort of discomfort that sort of awkwardness that you've kind of felt and that some of your best photographs sort of embody that. Totally. You know, that, that it's not so much, the, even with these celebrity photographs, it's like some, some of these people are the most handsome or more beautiful people in the world, but you bring into it a level of awkwardness, a little bit, not edgy, it's just awkward. I mean, and, I it makes I, it, and it makes it work remarkably well. I mean, one thing I, I did recognize early on that was helpful and, and kind of took the, I think when people go to photograph famous people, they feel a great responsibility to represent them fairly, you know, they're, they're, they're helping mold and create their persona, right? So, um, but I took that pressure off by realizing the best pictures were about me. 
even, even when I do my edit and, you know, pick up which pictures I want to push forward, it wasn't about like which picture of, you know, William Burroughs represents him best. It's a butcher, which one feels most like me? What do I connect to? Mm-hmm. And so I think first subconsciously and then more consciously over time made, made the pictures about me. And by doing that, not only am I, making them consistent to me and more fun for me, but also it's taken away, you know, the whole thing of like, you know, but this doesn't represent so-and-so. It's like, well, it's not about them. It's about me. And it represents me perfectly fine. And so it's a way of like, it's a way of removing that, uh, that, that, uh, that filter of like, is this, I mean, obviously I do want to, I research people. So I want to, I don't want to do things that are like insulting to them or like against character mm-hmm. overtly, unless it sort of illuminates in a cool way or something. But, but I do, but I don't really, I don't obsess over like, you know, is this going to capture their essence or what? I mean, I remember the teacher in school talked about capturing someone's essence in a portrait. And, you know, I was just in third year of college and I was like, this is, that's obviously idiotic. Like the idea that you can capture any like living humans, like essence in a single photograph is unobtainable. So, like, you know, let's, let's just do something that feels authentic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the whole story. You had you got diagnosed with testicular cancer when you were fairly young. So where does that sort of fit in this timeline that we've been talking about? Because I think so, it happened somewhere in your, in your 30s, early yeah, 30s. Yeah, so I, I don't, I'd have, to, I have to look at the exact date, but it was when I was around 30. So it's the same time as my turning 30 and the Irene Penn stuff. And I'm sure it's all tied into it, but I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it almost seemed like worse that I was turning 30 than <laughs> having cancer. Having cancer. <laughs> just for my own inter- I mean, you know, when you have, when you have a crisis like that, you just deal with the practical you know I just got myself to a doctor and got the surgery and all that Mm -hmm. so it wasn't like I was I wasn't processing the mental part of that at the time it was more like six eight months later then I kind of freaked out and went to see a psychologist and you know worked on that so did you discover that there was something wrong or was it oh yeah I had a a testicle that was cancerous so I had it removed okay but in terms of you realizing that oh there's something wrong you know you just noticed that there was something unusual and then you took yourself to the doctor Um, yeah like uh, I don't know I was feeling my testicles and one felt really weird it was like it was enlarged and it was like a testicle feels like I describe it as like a like a walnut inside of a cotton ball. Mm-hmm. But it felt like the cotton ball was not on one side. So it was like shiny on one side and not soft, uh, not soft and fuzzy. Uh, you know, and so I asked a friend about it and, you know, just cause she was sort of a close friend and she said, you should really go to a doctor. Like just go to urologist, get it looked at. Mm-hmm. I've always been pretty cool with going to the doctor. So I did it. And, and yeah, they said, well, we can't be sure, but we can't do a biopsy of testicles. It's too dangerous. So you just have to have it removed. Um, yeah, because I know a lot of guys who, um, anytime they think there's something wrong with them, they were really reluctant to go to the doctor and get it checked. And they wait until it's way too late to do anything about it. But it seems like you just... Crazy. Because at the time, the doctor said, like, you know, it's good you came early. You know, like, well, it doesn't seem that early. And they're like, oh, guys will come in here because they can't get their pants on anymore because their testicle is the size of a softball. <sighs> I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> it's like... I guess it's embarrassing having to go to someone and saying, like, I think there's an issue with my testicle. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more embarrassing having a softball-sized testicle. So you, you you said you went to a counselor afterwards. So what was that about? Was there issues with your mentality? Was there issues well, with Well, I mean, I think, I think I just or? was finally dealing with the, you know, the brush with death. Yeah. 
I mean, I, the thing about it is that I'd had, um, heart trouble as a baby. So I had surgery at five weeks old. So that had always been kind of part of my narrative of my life, like mortality. I think it's one of the reasons I was, I mean, probably the only reason I was so driven when I was young that I had a clear sense of like, of my, of mortality in a way that I think most young people don't. Hmm. You know, most people have to kind of have a parent die or a friend or, and then they kind of like, whoa, you know, or they have a brush with illness themselves and then they, they have a sense of it. But I've always had some sense. And even the testicular cancer thing was kind of like, yep, yeah, okay, I get it. It's part of my narrative, you know? Yeah. You know we were talking earlier about your career up up to around 30 is about, you know, aspiring to have this success and have it sort of manifest in a particular way. Well, now, you know, you're in your early 50s now. Yeah. And so you've achieved what a lot of people would consider a success. How has your perspective on what what you expect from your career changed now that you've had all these accomplishments and then now, now that you're older? I, I feel great gratitude for the success I've had. And I really, I'm proud of the work I've done, for sure. At the same time, I also, I feel like I have something to prove. I mean, I think that, I think that people, I think that people always have an underdog narrative in their heads. And I think especially successful people. I think there's a, you know, we, we tend to look at sort of prominent people and be like, you know, well, how can they, you know, be like, you know, how can they frame things like this? They're so-and-so. But, you know, mm-hmm. you look at, I don't know, Kanye West, Donald Trump, like Donald Trump totally has an underdog mentality. I mean, he sees himself as being like the one who's not in, you know, invited into the, the, the inner club of the New York elites and da, 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 da. Never really welcomed to that party. That his whole thing is driven by that. And he's the president. You know, uh, I think very successful. When you, when you, when you, when you, when you kind of view successful people in that way, you see how like, oh, now it makes sense. I mean, look at Oprah, like super, like, Possibly one of the most successful people in the whole country. She, she's like doggedly fighting. She feels like she's not there yet. Have you ever photographed her? No, she's, uh, I hear she's very controlling of how she's photographed and owning them and all that, which uh. is, well, I guess I'm critical. I think it's sort of unfortunate. I think it's, it's also amusing that she will criticize Trump's attacks on the press when she controls how she's, um, depicted. So your personal projects. You're always involved in some sort of personal project. Why have they been so in, important to you in terms of your development as a photographer? What's funny is I really only re-engaged with doing personal projects, I guess, about 12 years ago. What happened was, uh, yeah, I built my career doing photo shoots for magazines. Um, and, you know, usually, I guess, kind of because of the influence of people like Irene Penn, I always isolate down to one picture like this is the one Mm -hmm. and it was important for me for my discipline to show like this is my kind of this is the image I'm putting forth as the picture and then around 2006 um I got married bought an apartment with my wife in the city and the um just work turned I had a great few years that's how I got the money to buy the apartment and then work just went quiet I was like okay I need to you know come up with some work you know some kind of promotional piece. That was like my mentality. If I come up with a promotional piece that's, you know, cohesive and interesting, then that great. And I'd done a few in the years before that, but they've been kind of projects that had kind of come along and they end up feeling cohesive and became, you know, things I could work with, but I had nothing. So I was like, okay, I need to come up with something to promote. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. I'm a big believer in how like struggle and, you know, real like, 
times of pain and depression are so valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that time when I was turning 30 and, and how that was, you know, it turned my whole trajectory of my, my work around. This, this was like that too. And I guess I learned that, that I have, I can't just turn away. I have to, well, just on a practical level, I had to turn in and double down. Like, okay, what can I do to move things forward? And I didn't want to have a short-term solution. I wanted to do something of substance. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make, you know, project work. So I restructured my website to be more about bodies of work mm-hmm. rather than about individual pictures. Cause ad campaigns are campaigns of like three to 10 pictures or whatever, uh, images for a campaign. So I was like, I need to be showing me, I need to be showing more series work to show I can do ad campaigns. Okay. okay. So also too, look at what was going on in the culture with younger photographers coming out of school. The whole thing for them was like doing bodies of work around either like loser ideas that were tied together visually or thematically or, or very concentrated projects. It be, that had always been around, but you know, I think back to when I was in school or before them, the photo books were more kind of like, here's pictures I've taken over the years and they make a nice collection. But then right. it become much more more and more and more a like I'm doing a book about X and it's this relatively narrow sort of subject matter or theme and you know it's become even more and more like esoteric and I don't mean that in a bad way it actually in ways that are really exciting I was like, well, this is, this is something that's going on. And I had actually done series work when I was in college and, you know, it was actually really fun to kind of reconnect to that and do, do that again and have ideas. But I like came up with, you know, I started like four major series, like within a year. Uh, and one of them became Presence, which was my first book. Right. Um, one of them became, uh, the All Four series, which didn't really kind of go anywhere, but it ended up on my website as a fun thing, which is just people on their All Fours. One was the, uh, Isn't series, the Lookalikes. And I was doing the Chris Bucks with the other people named Chris Buck. And it was just, you know, all these projects were, I was kind of like, and, and what I realized about them, then and now too is that when things are quiet it makes me feel like i'm engaged with with my craft and my art hmm. you know that's that's almost the main value i mean i guess the main value is the work itself and its existence but but just having that sense of engagement because when i do get called to do a professional assignment i'm not like having to kind of you know, rev up all the engines from from nothing you know i'm like i'm already going i'm engaged i'm like super excited and also makes the other kinds of work like ad work is super fun to do but isn't always um creatively satisfying yeah. and so having the other work is a great balance it makes me feel makes me feel excited and appreciative of the ad work rather than you know frustrated by its limitations how, how, how important do you think are those projects towards procuring new clients because with any business you have people who you have a built-in relationship with who come back to you you know repeatedly for work and then there are other people who you never worked with before so how do you, do you have any sense in terms of i have no idea i mean it's funny because i finished my first book you know i came out in 2012 mm-hmm. so you gotta think i started in 2006 so that's six years later. It finally comes out. You know, it's my first book. You know, it's a kind of a pretty weird project. Like, it's, you know, people who are hiding in scenes. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly like like bang on to like leading to direct work. But my agent at the time was like, why are you doing this as your first book? Like, this is, what are you going to do, shoot interiors? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I believed in it and I thought, you know, this is going to be something that's going to make sense in the long run. But I really didn't lead to any work. Like, my, my philosophy at the time was do interesting work that's creative and pushes boundaries and 
great creative people want to work with me. But that's not what happened. It didn't seem to have any effect at all. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, what, what ended up happening was I got the bug of shooting personal projects and the satisfaction. I was like, this is really satisfying. And like, this is like a, a large body of work that I hadn't, I mean, that in that presence book, there's 50 pictures. I mean, it's funny. People ask me, why is that your first book? And the real answer is because it's the first body of work I had that was enough pictures to, to be able to be a call a book. <laughs> it's not like it was my best body of work. But what I learned from that was a great lesson, which led to what's going to be my next book, which is I'm going to now shoot a personal project that will not get me work. So I just, so I had all these different ideas bouncing around. And, just, and I kind of, and again, I guess it's that kind of thing to freeing oneself of like expectations or the f- expected framework. Cause I always thought of like books as being, you know, pro- promo piece or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if, if, they, if, they, if doing a book is not going to get me work, let's do something that might even be like off putting to clients. So my next book is Portraits of Strippers, Boyfriends, and Husbands. I, I was going to ask you about that because I saw a little bit of that. Uh, I think on, on your website or right. doing a presentation, I was just like, why? Well, and, you know, it's called Gentleman's Club uh-huh. and it's, uh, yes, husbands and boyfriends and girlfriends, whoever is dating the dancer. But what sparked uh, the idea in, in the first place? Uh, you know, I think it's that when I was young, I was, you know, as one people are, you're very curious and interested in all kinds of things in the culture. And as I've gotten older, I'm interested in less and less things. And one of the few things I find interesting is strip clubs. And I was in a strip club in here in LA and I was bored and like drinking like a, you know, soda water with a lime because I'm driving so I'm very safe about that stuff and you know it's like the middle of the afternoon there's like basically no one there and it, you know I can't really like read a magazine and be rude so, you know, there wasn't much going on and I, so I'm just sitting there kind of bored right and so I was just starting thinking of ideas for photo projects and I'm in that space so that, that's sort of on my mind and I'm like you know strip clubs is one of the few things I find really fascinating because I, I visit them in all the different cities and countries and they're always really different and I like them for the obvious reason too, but it's, but I wasn't about to do pictures of dancers and I, it'd be very difficult to get access to clubs to actually shoot like documentary style or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it crossed my mind, like, you know, what about something in the periphery of their lives? And that's when I thought of the boyfriends and because of my interest in, in vulnerability and, you know, what I see in them is this kind of combination of vulnerability and strength that you can't date a dancer and not be solid at your core hopefully (laughs) well there's there's a leak there's some there's something there if you're if you're sticking around there's something going on there yeah but you know also you're inherently vulnerable because your partner's making a living being intimate with other people and that is fascinating as a portrait photographer i mean you know i if i say to you hey i've got a collection of pictures of strippers boyfriends you're going to be like, I'd like to see that. <laughs> that sounds interesting. That's great. And it's, it's a way of you sort of keeping yourself invigorated. It keeps you excited about it. Cause totally. Because I've, I've talked to so many people who have been doing this for a long time, and sometimes they're just burnt, you know. And I'm sure you've talked to your friends who are in yeah. this industry as well who are just yeah. kind of like, they're, they're just running on fumes at this point. Yeah, and I, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, I, my friends, I don't really hear that from. I hear it more through my assistants. Interestingly, because they'll, mm. they'll say, 
you know, I'll be like, I'm sorry, my shoots are really hard because we are always going on location and a lot of gear and it's a lot of, you know, going in and out and all that. And I'm like, oh no, your shoots are so exciting and you're so into it. And I'm like, other people aren't into it? And I'm like, no, you know, I work for so-and-so. They don't say names, but they'll say, mm-hmm. I work with these people and they hate their job. I'm like, they're making their living taking pictures. How can they hate their job? They're being creative. They're working with top people. And they're like, yeah, but they just fell into something and they don't, they don't have, like you say, they're not finding their, they're not finding the thing to make them excited. Yeah. But when I go and photograph these guys, like, you know, usually when I photograph celebrities, I research them. I pre-visit locations. I have all these ideas and props. When I do the gentleman's club, I just show up with a camera and a laptop and maybe one person with me to help and a few Apple boxes to sit on. And then we just shoot. There's no lights, no pre-scouting, you know, because the thing is, I just need them to, sh- I just need them to show up, yeah. you know, and, and I'm just going uh, purely on passion. You know, I just follow the good light and we shoot for a couple hours and then we talk for 45 minutes. I interview them about who they are and their mm-hmm. stories and, um, and that's it. And, you know, I'm just going, I'll make a few notes ahead of time of just things that are on my mind, like ugly colors or, you know, um, make pictures darker, you know, just like general mm-hmm. notes. And, uh, you know, it usually works out that it helps me. Do you find it's a little, well, how, how does it compare to, how does it compare photographing real people as opposed to celebrities? Is it easier? It's harder. Because with celebrities, they come with a whole narrative that the audience is going to know. So if I show you a picture I did of Jim Carrey, you're bringing all the Jim Carreyness to it. Mm-hmm. And I can do a pretty quiet thing with him. As long as it's a little interesting or a little different, you're like, wow, that's cool. You, you got Jim Carrey to do that or whatever. I shoot, you know, something else, just a regular person. It, it has to all be on the page. Mm. You know, maybe there's a small caption. I mean, what's nice about doing a series is I can just be like, I can, so I've got the series on my iPad and I show people trying to, cause I'm always trying to find new subjects. I'm trying to get people to know about the project. And I'll just say like, you know, these are, these are men and women who are dating strippers. They'll go through and be like, whoa, cause then they're at least bringing the narrative of this is someone who's dating a dancer. And sometimes the dancers are in there in the pictures too, you know, just a tiny fraction of them, but it's a good way to get people to understand context. That's great. I look forward to seeing that series. I'll show it to you when we finish talking. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own. And wow. Anyone. So someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be? Oh, my God. Well, I, see, I, I just don't want to hit someone that you've been you've covered already. I'll tell you someone who I'm really influenced by, and I guess it does connect to that Irving Penn thing, but it's someone who does it with regular people, which is... Um, uh, Katie Greenan. Okay. Do you know her work? No. She's a fine art photographer. She did a series called Model American where she would, I guess she did Craigslist ads and just got people to pose for her. Mm-hmm. And there are these very vulnerable, strange pictures. Like she'd take them to like, like if she was here, near here, she'd take them to like the LA River and have them like lie in like, like the half drained river among some vegetation. Like maybe they'd take their like shirt off or something. And then it would just be someone like looking like me or like you and just this very vulnerable open but they weirdly have this sense of being like a stranger at the same time yeah like it's almost like she happened upon someone and took their picture because there isn't this there isn't there isn't an intimacy of like 
like like we're connected. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Like the people often look kind of like a little afraid. It they're 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 really wonderful. And uh, I mean, I'm sure she's influenced my pictures. Hopefully not too <laughs> too overtly. But uh, I'm a big fan of her work, Katie well, Greenan. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Chris for making time for us. To find out more about him and his work, visit him at chrisbuck.com and follow him on Instagram at the underscore Chris underscore Buck. And don't forget to pick up his most recent book of portraits, Uneasy. You'll find a link for each in the show notes and website. And remember, I'll also be teaching a series of workshops this year where I teach my personal approach to street photography. I'll be in San Francisco next month in June at Street Photo SF and New Orleans in October. We've also just announced two more workshops, including one in New York City in October and one in Paris in September. You'll find links for all of these in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Sign up today. I look forward to meeting some of you guys soon. You can also support The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to listen to us for the very first time, and that makes all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. Thanks to Fafield from the U.S. for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us not only meet the cost of production for the show, but also help us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website and show notes. Thanks to Alan Doyle, David Ebinger, and Frank Field for their recent contributions. I appreciate you guys so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarionex. And this is Ibarionex, and this is The Candid Frame.